start recording here and let's go live here. And I'm just going to wait. So yet? I'm going to turn on more cameras. Yeah. Okay. Fine. Yeah. More lights. More lights. Okay. Yeah. Let's go. Yeah. I just, you know, when, when we're doing that, I start thinking of the things. I'm like, oh, okay. Brighten up the room a bit too. Absolutely. And Excellent. so. So here we are. Beautiful. Gorgeous. It's so good to see you. Can you believe like it's been, I, I don't know, maybe like 18 years? <laughs> easily, easily. Easily. Since we bumped into each other like on the street in front of Duane Reed. I think I was going to Duane Reed. And I may have bumped into you, you know, in front. Yeah. It's yeah. Been a <laughs> and then we saw each other again at Trader Joe's. Exactly. Um, remember that in, in, yes. um, in the five towns? Yes, I yes. Like, I know you. And you were like, yeah, I know you too. But we but how? We don't know. <laughs> it took us a while to figure it out. I know. During the shopping, you look fantastic. How are the boys? Thank you. They are beautiful. And how are your kids? Oh, they're just turned seven. You have seven a boy yesterday. and girl, right? I do. Yeah, yeah, I have twins. Yeah, they just turned seven. So, um, yeah, I know. Time flies. So I'm so excited to talk to you, mainly because um, your book, Sunny's Gift, is really one of the things that has impacted the way that I, um, first of all, I acknowledge your work in this field in regards to um, bullying and um, what's going on with our children and how important it is to educate. So I have a question for you because essentially it comes down to this sense of inclus inclusion. And where do you feel the disconnect is in that piece of it all. So here you have a child. And why don't we first start with this? Let's just start. Let me let me retract. Why don't you just start by telling me a little bit more about what you do? Oh, perfect, perfect, perfect. So it's been a, a journey. It has been a journey to right now. I would if someone said, what do you do? I would say I am a trainer in the diversity and inclusion space. And I provide trainings to universities, corporations, law firms, schools, all surrounding diversity and inclusion. That's what I would probably say. And I would say as a part of that, I'm an author and thought leader. So that's my introduction today. But it was certainly quite a journey to get here because when, I, when you met me, when I was 22 years old in front of Duane Reed, I was an investment banker. We met in Manhattan, I believe. And I was that's like right. going to Duane Reed in well, between- like 30 Second and Seventh Avenue, or something like that. Exactly, know. exactly. And I was just going in between to Duane Reed on like my break or what have you. And I was an investment banker. I was interested in the corporate life, and I continued that life. I went on. I graduated from Harvard. I became an investment banker. Worked at Bank of America. Now Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Went on to law school and business school at the University of Pennsylvania. Wore in went on to work at a law firm. And so nothing in my background said, this person's going to write books. I don't think I was <laughs> a child. Especially you know, fiction books, fiction books. Like I was not seen as like some creative person. I was seen as analytical. I remember someone called me an artist. Like one of my supervisors at a law firm was like, and you seem like you might be the more artistic type. I saw it as an insult, Aisa. I was I'm like, sure. what is this woman talking about? <laughs> What is this woman talking I'm supposed to be analytical and critical. So literally it was not a part of my identity. But then something happened that made me shift directions and say, I need to harness anything I have 
towards this goal of creating a better, more inclusive society and a society in which we truly love ourselves and love one another. And that shift happened when my son was about three, I took him to a barber shop, a black barber shop in Springfield Gardens, Queens. You came to my house later. So you know, it was that area of Queens. I do, I remember, yeah. Yes. So I take him to this barber shop. I tell the barber, hey, don't shave off all his hair. I want him to have more style. The barber proceeds to shave his hair starting from here. I would say, hey, 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 what are you doing? He said, you have a real N-I-G-G-A right here. He's a native boy from the tribe. This is not pretty here. This is the best cut for him. So he made this comment. And at the time I did not, this was, you know, this would be considered a micro assault. Now that I'm a diversity trainer, I know this is a microaggression, a micro assault, a micro insult. I know that it's those things, but at the time I was just taken aback, did not know what to do. The haircut had to continue shaved because it yeah, was sure. nothing to do with shave from here. And so I literally let him continue, gave him a tip even. At the back of the place, there was a woman who was very bleached. Let's say her face was like your face, but her hands were like my hands. So you know something, generally people's hands and faces are not that disparate with respect to complexion. So I knew that she was bleaching. And I said, oh my goodness, what can I do, especially for people of African descent, to have us really love ourselves, whatever shade of the African diaspora we come in, let us love it. Whatever kink in the African diaspora rainbow that we come in, let us love it. Whatever, whoever we are in the rainbow of humanity, let us love it. And so what can I do? So I'm reading a book at the time that says the best way to teach any lesson is through a story. And I'm like, okay, a story? Ama, you are not an artist. I didn't identify someone who would be anywhere capable of creating any story. I was not, you know, never seen. I mean, I did well in all subjects, but never was I considered that type of quote unquote person. But this is what liberated me. Marion Williamson was on Super Soul Sunday on OWN, one of the best, you know, shows on earth, right? right. One of the best, best shows on earth. She um, says on OWN, Art is no different from prayer and every person is capable of creating art. This was like huge to me because basically, and I think that it's really important and, and all of us, you know, if, if I were more disciplined and maybe I need to start, we would say, say this to ourselves every day. Art is no different from prayer. She said, God did not, pardon me, Michelangelo did not create the statue David. God almighty created David and Michelangelo was just the vehicle from which it came through. All he did was wipe away the excess stone in order to create that beautiful sculpture. Such a powerful concept that made me say, let me attempt to meditate, pray, and write a story about self-love and respect for all. And that's how I created this story. In my meditation, something someone said to me years beforehand, and the person said, African people are the original people. Like all things in nature are here grows toward the sun. And that came to me. And through that statement coming to me meditation, my meditation, I wrote a story about a sun child with kinky hair, with hair that grew toward the sun. And the sun child has three siblings, an earth child with straight hair that grows down, down toward the soil, a water child with straight hair that flows like water, a wind child with straight hair that blows in the breeze. But the sun child gets teased by the siblings for having hair that grows up, not down. They tease the sun child. The sun child takes a stick, 
starts beating every, every spiral of here to make it straight. And when the last spiral becomes straight, the hair falls out and the sun disappears. So that's how I created this story. It was inspired. It was something that I prayed on. And I believe it is a very powerful story. I wrote the story. I did a Kickstarter in 45 days. I raised about $12,000 for the first print run of about 3,000 hardcover books to pay for the graphic design, the illustration. I do the Kickstarter. It is successful. I print the book. Now I'm an author and I need to figure out what to do with being an author. So that is the story as how, about how I went from corporate lawyering to actually being an author and what inspired that. And I mean that, you know, and, the, and, it, and that now I've, I've morphed and now I'm working more with corporations on diversity plans, I'm working on staffing and so forth, as well as doing trainings. But the core mission remains the same. And that's this, we all have gifts to share. People of all races, of all colors, of all heights, of all disabilities have gifts to share. How do we create a more equitable society in which all people, one, love themselves enough to have the courage to share that gifts and where we all love each other enough to respect those gifts? I love what you said about this whole sense of this is where I had put myself as an attorney, as um, a person that worked in corporate America, this is the box, quote unquote, that I have, I really put myself in, you know, and so, so many of us do that to our own self, based on the external societal pressures of what it is, but you can do multiple things. And you can do those across your lifespan, you don't only need to do one thing, you can shift, and there can be a pivot in the way that you see, and create for yourself. And the other thing that I loved is that, and I've always said this, I started having um, healing talks at the beginning of the pandemic. And it was really just a gathering of a few individuals, maybe no max than 10, that would have joined in a conversation about what was going on internally in, in the midst of the pandemic and with the racial tension that was going on in our world. Because there was lots of Facebook memes and there were lots of Instagram arguments and there were lots of other things that were going on, but real conversation wasn't happening. And so that is probably one of the top 10 reasons why I decided to start a podcast because I felt like there was a connection in the conversation that sometimes we miss and that we're not having with each other. But what I used to say and what I still say that is that your spiritual practice is a part of the revolution your spiritual practice is a part of revolution of the revolution. And so when you're looking and you're seeking and you're trying to figure out where to go, I sit, sit, pray, do whatever it is that your spiritual practice calls you to do to be able to cl clear the road, mm -hmm. to create more clarity in this time that you are figuring things out. So I absolutely love that. And so I just want to go back and ask you a question about colorism. Because mm -hmm. This is a big deal um, mm -hmm. in the community, the black and brown community. Um, and I have experienced it. Mm -hmm. And I, um, and I just have, you know, I'm just interested to find out what your thoughts on that and how do we heal it up? Because it's an issue. And it's yeah. a pretty big issue. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for asking that. I mean, we understand what it, so let me just for, for your audience members who aren't as, as verse, right? Color, colorism are these distinctions 
and these differences and this discrimination based on distinctions and differences with respect to skin tone, very much rooted in colonialism and rooted in slavery. So for many people in the African American community, it goes back to you know 1619, the slave, slave era in which on plantations, very often white slave masters would rape black slave women and those black slave women would have mixed race children. The mixed race children would be treated better. Naturally, they're the slave master's children. So very often they were in the home, they had more comfortable work assignments, they were shielded from some of the most horrible uh, labor on the slave plantation. And in some cases, even they were given gifts. They were given, they were bequeathed gifts of wealth because they were in fact related to the slave master. And in some cases you had people who weren't like biracial, they had a very thin amount, a very small amount of black ancestry, but because of the one drop rule, this idea that one drop of black blood makes someone's might make someone black, these people were regarded as black even though they may have been, you know, 90% white or what have you. So this is where it comes from. And there was some disdain that was to created. say the least to say the least right so you had people who were more phenotypically black who were dark skinned who were african begrudging their siblings literally their siblings because they could have the same mother who were in the house having a more comfortable lifestyle but then additionally you had it going the other way as well in which people in the house might say we are better we're more refined we're we're, we're, we're more white so to speak and so very often in some cases people who are lighter skin were discriminating against people who are darker skin, you can't be in my social group. They say that very often with many of the sororities and fraternities in the African-American community, there was a paper bag test. If someone did, was not lighter than a paper bag, they couldn't be in the sorority, they could not be in the fraternity, they could not be in the club, and they were excluded. And so these are the roots. And, and, and we could say the same thing about colonialism. When British people and French people went to Africa and Portuguese people went to Africa and South America and Spain, the relatives of the colonial master were given privileges that the people who are not relatives were not given. So that's the history. So now where do we go from there? Because I think this impacts so many children, so many people, and it impacts ch children and adults in both directions. On one direction, you may have dark skinned individuals like myself. Like I remember being called dark and crispy when I was a child. I remember literally crying in my closet as a young person, I tell people, had I not been born, you know, dark skin looking like this, I could have been a neurosurgeon in addition to being a doctor, in addition to being a lawyer and an MBA and an author, because all that time that I spent crying in a closet thinking I was so ugly because of my dark skin, I could have been reading books and doing something productive with my time. So you How old were you? How old were you? How old was I when I was crying in the closet? Yeah, yeah. Probably around fourth, fifth grade. So that's like nine, 10, 11. Yeah, I would probably say between fourth grade and I would probably say fourth grade and eighth grade. There was a lot of crying. That's a long class. time. It's a long time. It's and a there's long, a lot of a lot trauma. Of and it's trauma. It sits it's in your body and it sits in your mind as trauma. Absolutely. So you, you can't understand it. You, you don't really understand what it is that, you know, why are they saying this? Why are they, why are they treating me this way? Why are they treating me this way, right? There, is, is there something that I did? Is nothing that you can absolutely change. Absolutely. I remember, you know, I grew up in Harlem and I remember, you know, walking down the street and being called high yellow, you know, and then this the sense of like, um, you don't really belong in this place or, um, you know, if, if you wouldn't respond, then you were seen as, um, Uppity or, up yes. or, you know, um, you, you just weren't seen as 
open, so to speak. And belonging. And belonging. belonging, Right. And that's on the other hand. Many lighter skinned people of African descent are struggling with people saying, one, they're not really quote unquote black. And very often these people in their hearts, in their minds, they, of course, they don't see, they may not see any difference between themselves and others. So they're like, why are you saying you don't belong? We're in the same house. You know, we, we were eating the same food. We're living the same life. So you have that feeling of not belonging for many people on the lighter skin spectrum. And then additionally, I, I believe we have what you're saying. It's people projecting. Right. This idea that a lighter skinned person thinks he or she is better. The person could be doing nothing, <laughs> nothing that shows they he or she, but it's like literally just walking down the street. Oh, you think you're better than everyone else? That's well, right. The person's literally just walking down the street. They're not saying anything. Yeah. Not the judgment, anything. the judgment. There were so many judgments and so many biases that, you know, yes. the unconscious biases that, that, you know, I can, you know, now seeing it, I can see that we're um, kind of printed upon me and they weren't yes. even mine yes you know, it was this yes. sense of what is it that wh- why would you ever think that like what where does that come from like that has nothing to do with who I am and so I felt like there were times that I was trying to fit in mm-hmm. like so many people you know people are trying to fit in so where do where is it that I fit in where is it do I fit in this group or do I fit in, in that group because when you're different whether you it's a it's a it's from the color of your skin, whether mm-hmm. it's the neighborhood you grew up in, you know, mm-hmm. it's still this sense of belonging. And I feel like there's a, a, there's a, there's a hole in our community, in our society. Cause there's so many people who don't feel like they belong. Wow. They don't, and that's a horrible feeling. It's a sad feeling. I mean, as human beings, we all want to feel a part of a community. Like this is a literal need to feel a part of a community. And so that it's devastating. And in right. Terms- and, and, and then when you, when you go back to the little girl in the closet who was crying for four years, was that's the sense, like why, where do, where do I belong? What do you mean? The color of my skin is, is an issue. And yeah. really from those who are quote unquote in, you know, who are, are black and brown people. We're not talking about white people. We're talking about black and that brown people. That is the sad part. That is really, really, really the sad part because I did not experience it until I was at a school that was predominantly white. And so it was like, yeah, it was maybe there were three black girls in the class of 19 and, but no one, you know, kind of mentioned it to a certain extent or mentioned our color within the fact that we were black. Yes, we were the black girls in the class, but the white people didn't necessarily distinguish between some of us being lighter and some of us being dark. And it's possible we were kind of around the same complexion. So maybe that could be part of it. But when I moved to a different neighborhood in Queens, which was entirely black and brown, there was like, you know, whether the black person was from Panama, Dominican Republic, uh, you know, Guyana, Ghana, Nigeria, they were all black and brown people. And so it was, it was, it was a shock. It was a shock. But I would say this in terms of our healing from it. I think that a part of it has to come, it has to come on many levels. I think from an individual level, all of us need to engage in the work, the meditation, the prayer, the therapy of healing that child crying in the closet within us. There has to be some individual work that's done, some affirmations that are said, like we have to look at ourselves in the mirror and say, you know, I'm beautiful. I'm beautiful all the time. And for me, a part of that own journey was me just looking at images of other dark skinned women. Like I would pull up, I had a book of Naomi Campbell and Naomi Campbell had some new pictures in it. My friend came over and was like, why do you have new pictures of Naomi Campbell? (laughs) 
in your apartment. And I'm like, this is my, you know, black girl affirmation. Every time I would look at her picture, I would say, if I look anything like this, then I'm gorgeous. When Pizza won like most beautiful person, you know, I bought up uh, tons of copies and like That's literally right. I felt like I won. Every now and then, even as a 40 year old woman with children, I will Google dark skinned women with short hair when I'm rocking my hair short, dark skinned women with locks. So I'll Google that and just look at those images and say, these people are beautiful. I look like these people. So I believe that's the individual work. I think there's also collective work that we have to do. And that's part of the reason why I'm so excited to be a children's author. We need to make sure that we are bombarding the universe with diverse, beautiful images that are all regarded. So like when I did this book, The Talk, I told the illustrator, I want a dark skinned woman with locks in a relationship shown as being loved by a man who's lighter. Because very often in our society, the woman should be light and the man should be dark. And many dark, many light-skinned men don't appreciate though that stereotyping. Oh, and sure, so said, yeah. Mm -hmm. For sure. So I said, let's switch the stereotypes up. So I believe that the work of artists and thought leaders is to also create those images. So if we see enough images, videos, movies, books, etc., toys, of, 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 of toys, Dolls, thank you. Of all this beauty being represented, our minds will be expanded. But if we are all surrounding ourselves with images of a white blonde Barbie and saying that's what's beautiful all the time and books with just those sort of images, we're lost. We are lost. We will continue to, to continue to, to purchase, you know, straight weeds all day long, continue to purchase skin bleaching cream. We'll continue to dishonor the beauty that we were given. Right. And when you look at it from a place of authenticity, it sets you up. It sets us up because you can't be the true self. You can't be the authentic person that you were created to be. And so it sets not only up in the way that you look, but what you do, how you interact, where you're create, you know, how you're connecting to people, the relationships that you have, you know, so many, so much of what we do is a part of relationships, right? We can't get out mm -hmm. of that. We are parts of, we are in relationships at all times. And so do you want your relationships to be authentic? Well, guess what? It has nothing to do with the other person. It has to do with you and where you're at and how you are, um, your, your integrity of showing up as you are and regardless of what that may look like. And so I talk about it. Um, I don't remember where, but I guess I've talked so much. I don't remember where the story came from, where, where the story's at now, but it's somewhere. I think it's one of my first, uh, you know, my bonus episodes, but I, you know, I, I talk about this sense of, you know, my grandmother who I love dearly. My grandmother's from Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. And so she started relaxing my hair at the age of seven. Wow. And I remember, um, I remember going to the salon and I remember thinking about why is it that I'm the only one that has this chemical in my hair, you know, wow. just thinking about it. I'm seven. Yeah. And it was, it was this sense that it was, it was a very violent. Um, it was a very violent experience, not physically violent, but emotionally, yeah, emotionally violent, violent because it was burning and it was hurting and it was, on for a long time yeah and, and then I thought well why do I have to make my hair straight like what's the and mm -hmm. so seven we're talking seven years old you know and so you grow up kind of 
focused on the sense that there's something that needs to be changed. So it's taken a long time for me to change that shit. And I've changed it, but it's taken a long time because, because this is this, this, this whole sense of that, you know, the perception of who you are is based on how you look. Yeah. Yeah. Especially as a woman. As a girl child or as a a girl child, as a girl child and what the expectation was. And I have no doubt that my grandmother loved me tremendously and she did it from a, from a different place, but it's definitely been, um, a, a, a place of healing for me. And so, um, when you're listening to this and you're thinking to yourself, you know, how do I transition out to be my true authentic self, um, based on the way that my hair looks or the way that I look in general, the clothes that I wear, the style that I have, you know, really it's, it's, it's the foundation to really create healing and to kind of charge that up and move that forward. And so I love this book because it just resonates with me. And so um, it's on my Christmas list. So we're just going to pause. Is that, uh, that sound, is that a, um, is that, did you hear that? I'm, I'm just pausing. Okay. Okay. It is basically, I don't know how to turn it off. When my phone gets a text message, Oh, okay. It comes to my computer. Oh, I see. Okay. So that, that is the, that's the dinging. So I don't know exactly how to get the, you know, yeah. How to turn off that mechanism basically. Okay. okay. Yeah. Cause I think if I mute my phone, it won't, it won't, you know, it won't. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I just want to, I can't, can, I can't mute the, the microphone. No, I just want to yeah. make sure. Cause she'll have to, the editor edit that out. To, well, it'll, it's like, it, I thought it was just some, you know, just a one-time thing. And then I was like, oh, this may be- I've never gotten three text messages. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you, so you muted it. So hopefully it, it'll- Yeah, I'm muting my phone. I'll see whether that is. Well, let me see if I can disable it. Let me see. Mm, details. Let's see, let's see, let's see. Uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna quit messaging. Let me see. I quit it. I don't, I, we'll see. I quit. Okay. Okay. That's fine. That's fine. Yeah. 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 Okay. So here we are. And I'm just thinking to myself, how do we heal? So this new year, 2021, which is when this episode is going to drop Mm -hmm. the focus for the gift to shift podcast is really about women because we are the bearers of the new world Mm -hmm. of the world. We are just the creators. We create. That's what we do. We birth. We raise the boys. We raise the women, mm-hmm. the girls. And so, how do you how do you gather the community of women to be able to be more inclusive and supportive of one another in this place of healing? Wow, I think that that is that is such a beautiful goal for us to have as women to really love and support each other. And again, I think it happens on multiple levels. On a personal level, it comes from us as women calling each other up on the phone, especially at this time, saying, how are you? How yes. are you doing? Taking that time out because very often, especially when we have kids, we're not nurturing those girl rela- girlfriend relationships 
the way we used to in the past because life is taking over. We're trying to earn money. We're trying to make sure our kids are clothed and fed. We're taking care of husbands very often as well. So I think on an individual level, we all have to try our best to cultivate community by texting, calling, preferably calling our girlfriends up on the phone and, and, and organizing Zoom meetings when we can and so forth. So I believe that has to happen on the individual level and the community level. I also think that, you know, from an organizational perspective, and this is something that I myself am looking into, what are the sort of organized communities of women that we can join for networking and for, for, for providing opportunities for one another, both emotionally and personally, but also financially and from a business perspective. I love supporting women entrepreneurs. I love going into, you know, there's so many businesses in my community that are owned by women and every opportunity that I can, I try my best to support them because that's a currency of love. It's saying, hey, I see you. I know that's that right. you have a dream. I love your dream. I support your dream. Right. And I'm engaging in an energetic exchange in That's order right. to support it. So I really do believe that it has to happen on the individual personal level, as well as on the community level and the org organized level. And that there's so many ways to do it. You're doing it through your calls. You're doing it through your dollars. You're doing it through your organizations of women on multiple levels. You engage in that system. And so the organization piece and the piece of community and kind of working together um, in, in, on that platform, um, I have to talk about your, the last two to three years of you in politics, because I followed you and I was just like, yes, I'm so excited. So we both live on Long Island and I was, um, and, and it, it's, it was so exciting for me. So tell me how that transitions, because you were a corporate attorney, you were <laughs> an investment banker, then you became an author and you were still doing that at the time that you moved into politics. So tell me where th that was another shift that happened. And so tell me how that came to be. Oh my goodness. This is a really good story. So <laughs> tell me, I can't wait. It really was not even intentional to a certain extent. So basically I uh, was on the board of a special needs school and the special needs school was having its 50th year anniversary. I go to the 50th year anniversary with a mentor of mine who's like the chairwoman of the board and brought me onto the board. And I, meet, I met the current comptroller of Nassau County. So I meet him and my mentor is always like, she's always shooting off my resume to people. She's like, did you meet Alma? And Alma went to this school and she went to that school and blah, 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 blah. He tells me, he has a job in the comptroller's office for a lawyer. Now, at the time, I was full full time into thought leadership and being an author, and so I said, "Oh, it would be great to get some part time work at the at, at, at the comptroller's office." So I'm like, "Okay, I'll I'll go apply for this job." I go in with my resume. I give you know I, I, I engage in the interview, and he offers me the job. Then let's say a few days later, he calls me, and I believe it was a Thursday afternoon, and he says, I'm running for Nassau County Executive. So he was the current comptroller, which is kind of like the treasurer, let's just say. He said, I'm running for Nassau County Executive. And he says he's running a renegade campaign. He has not been endorsed by the official Democratic Party, but he has the resources to still engage in a democratic primary. And instead of being a one person, he wants to go in with the slate and would I run for county comptroller and my decision must be made by Monday. 
<laughs> Aisa. Yeah, I know it. I already what? Yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, oh my. So I call my mentor up. I'm like, you got me into this. I okay, wait, 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 wait. I gotta yes. ask. I gotta yes. ask. What was the first thought? This can't be happening. <laughs> it was something along those like, is this real? Is this really happening? If you like, had to make a decision thing? at that one point, what would it have been? It would have been no. It would have been no. At that one point, it would have been no. So as soon as you heard it, you would have said no. If there I would was have said no, no part of you that was like, eh, okay, maybe. Oh, this is exciting. If, if oh, I had to make a decision at that moment and he didn't give me till, you know, Monday was a press conference. So if he didn't give me till Friday or Saturday or what have you, I would have said no in that moment because it was just too sudden for me. It just okay. felt too sudden. It wasn't like okay. something I get up for. So I call my mentor up and my mentor's like, Ama, are you joking? This is a phenomenal opportunity for all the years that I've known you. You've been so incredibly invested in making sure that small businesses on Long Island thrive, that diverse businesses thrive. This is so up your alley. I'm a, why are you even hesitating? This is a phenomenal opportunity. So I speak to her. I speak to my parents. I speak to my husband. I speak to like the advisory group. Right, then, right, 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 right. Yeah. How about the boys? How about the boys? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have some boys. I didn't have some boys. I should have. They're like, you can do this. And I'm like, oh my God, are we, am I really doing this? Am so I really doing I had to tell him the next day, I think I told him on Friday that I would do it. He had to do a background check on me. We met at a frozen yogurt shop in the neighborhood on Sunday for him to tell me the background check was, you know, came out clear and we would announce on Monday. Oh my, my goodness. goodness. And so it was like three months of my life that I, I mean, it was an important learning lesson for me because now if I ever run again, I know what to do. Like it, but it's it, when I, I used to, when I say it stretched me. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, can I mean, I felt stretched right. before. Right, right, right. No, nothing comparing, nothing compares. Taking care of two kids. Right, no. Being a wife, having a house out here. Right, right, when right, I say right. I felt like stretched to the brim, I mean, it was just so much work because campaigning does not pay the bills. That's right. And then this There's is no another pay. thing. No pay. This is another thing. I then thought I, part of the reason why I said yes was because I was supposed to work in his office. And so I said, I'm going to learn while working in his office. That will also be a part-time job to provide some financial stability while I'm engaging in campaigning. A few weeks later, I'm like, my start date is coming. He says, you no longer have the job. <gasps> oh my gosh. What did now you do? it's seen as a conflict. <gasps> and, 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 and not what, so did that mean like, <laughs> I didn't expect that. I'm so sorry. I didn't expect that. So does that mean that you no longer have the job because you were run his running mate, but did it mean that once the process was over that you can apply again or he filled the position? Well, basically this was June. We had, okay. The, the election I think was in September. This was June. Then he would be out of office by December because this was the election to see. So it was like, if I'm not getting the job now, I'm not getting the job, period. And so he tells me that and I'm like, oh my goodness. So when I say it was like stress, 
trying to, you know, trying to make my money, trying to keep my business afloat because my business is going to be there afterward. Like if I don't the business is going to be there afterward. That's right. That's right. Taking care of the kids. I mean, leaning on everyone in my, in my, in my network, my parents babysitting all of the time. It was so much work. And so I am, you know, very committed to community improvement. I'm very committed to global improvement and politics is a venue, but I tell anyone because now people come to me because somehow, despite the fact that I had, my campaign was maybe $10,000. My opponent had had $100,000 in January before I even knew about the race. By the time I entered the race, he had 250K. Mm. Yet despite that disparity of 10 versus 250K, I got 42% of the vote. Wow. And so what do you attribute attribute that to what do you attribute that to plain old work knocking on doors right visiting work people, means going yeah. to events talking to people relating to them sharing mm-hmm. you know my vision with them mm-hmm. and it but goes back to what you said which is community community yeah community, it's community and community. conversation it's community and conversation it's no longer media as it was before it's community and conversation we need to 100% because yeah. I had no ads I had no media right, and, right, and not right. even that the media was more a part of the establishment right. so if anything the media tried to make me look bad like it right. was like very funny someone else ran recently and there was like this beautiful picture of her in Newsweek and she said you can tell the media likes you because of the picture they chose the opposite happened with me Like the media was against me. I remember I'm in a media interview. I see a flash and I'm like, I'm sorry, you're taking a picture. Let me smile. Oh, no, 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 that's not necessary. And I was like, you're taking a picture. Let me smile. Refused and put the picture of me not smiling, just, you know, random in the publication. It was the opposite of media support, yet still 42%. And so I tell everyone like, you know, like if I were to run a campaign next time, One, you want to make sure that you have everything in order in terms of your own home. Like I wouldn't run a campaign unless I had a nanny. Right. Like just true. My kids are not that old, but they're not that young. They're 10 and eight. Mm -hmm. Unless I had a nanny with me, I would not run another campaign because it was just so burdensome on the family dynamics. So I would say you have to save up and make sure you have that cushion to be able to to, to have that, that need met, that family need met. Additionally, you have to have like a really a really, really, really um, on point team. So, I mean, there were times in my campaign that I had someone who was helping me with the campaign. And let's say I had to pay him for the people he was gonna help to like do flyers. Let's say I, I transferred the money on Friday. On Sunday, I was at a church speaking. He calls me up. I have to come and get cash out the bank for him. And I said, but I transferred the money on Friday. Let's say it was $500. It hasn't cleared yet and I have to pay people. But I said, you see that the $500 is there because you see the transfer. He didn't have a cushion of $500 to pay even knowing that I had already transferred the funds. Right. So literally I have to go from a speaking engagement at a church, leave to go and get like, when, it was, when I say stretch me, it's stre- like, I'm just giving you some examples of how. Yeah, sure. But and of so- course, whatever stretches you. Right gives you a newfound under, understanding and perspective. So I look back at the experience fondly 
And I've learned lessons that will yeah. carry me through life because life is a campaign to a certain extent. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> it sure is. What is the, what's the one lesson that you learned in that whole process to be a female who has no experience in politics to go ahead and run in one of the most diverse areas on Long Island? I would say it's what you said, community. Yeah. It's like, literally, you have to make sure that you're tapping into community resources at all times. You are hanging out and you, you know the people who are the National Coalition of Black Women, the NAACP, the right. National a Action Work Network, the Long Island Progressive Society. Like you need to make sure that you are like right. in community in order to have any sort of chance. And then I would say the second one is the self-care portion, which is making sure that you have the materials, the resources available to really engage in self-care and family care during what will be one of the most arduous processes of your life. I can't even imagine. I mean, even I, I remember listening to the news and then just seeing like, I was like, oh my gosh, she's running. How is she doing this? How is she doing this? And where did this come from? Essentially is where, what, what I thought. And so now, okay. So the campaign is over 42%. It's excellent. Congratulations. Just for running. I mean, just for saying yes. It took a lot of courage to do that. A lot of courage. <laughs> and then, so here you are. And when did your, when did the book Earth's Gift come out? When did you oh, debut that gift? That, that thank book? Thank you. Oh, hold up. Do I have copies of Earth? Yeah, I do have a copy of Earth's Gift here. Beautiful. This is the sequel to Sune's gift, Earth's Gift. And I have to write stories for every single character. This came out just last year, 2019. That's what I thought. So uh, it was after it was after the race. Correct? Exactly. After, it, was after after, the race. it was after the race. And so I love that book because it talks about procrastination, right? <laughs> you got it. <laughs> and so it's this whole sense. It's like it's like this ebb and flow, you know, because when you look at your life and you think just in general, for everybody who's listening, it's this sense of like, yeah, you know, everything, it just seems a little like I'm doing this and I'm doing that and I'm doing this, but it all has a common thread. And so I want to find out what that common thread is for you. But I also do before that, I do want to talk about the book and tell me why you chose procrastination as the topic. Yeah. Okay. I'm so glad you asked me that. So the first gift, Sune's gift was about really just, it was about that, that little girl to a certain extent who was crying in the closet and what you can't, what you, you have to get the self-esteem right in order to do everything. You have to overcome the bullying and the horrors of the world. But I realized that when it comes to impediments to achieving our goals, that is just the first step. The first step is making sure that you love yourself enough to be willing to share that gift and that you are blocking out the naysayers. But the second impediment, I believe, is actually having the discipline to do the work. So when I go and I speak to children, I say, listen, you could have the best natural singing voice in the world. If you are not practicing and you are not singing and you're not eating right and drinking right, because there are people who are professional singers, they may not be drinking coffee, they may not be eating ice cream after a certain time, they are disciplined, they're singing That's for a right. certain amount of time every, mm -hmm. every, every day. If you're not willing to do the work, Mm -hmm. Your gift will not come to a fruition. So Earth Day's gift is about that. And that story, <laughs> and that story, literally, you have Earth Day who is having fun and procrastinating instead of putting nutrients into the soil and eventually it catch up, catches up with Earth Day. Now, can't we all agree? 
agree and relate to that. Thank you. All of us. It's like, (laughs) there's this concert pianist who says, I skip practice one day. I notice I skip practice two days. My, my, my piano teacher notices. And then I skip it the third day and the audience knows it. Yeah. Have to stay on top of things. And so I had to write a second book and you're going to see two more follow-ups to say, yes, self-esteem, is important, respect for all is important, but when you're really trying to get to the next level, there are other things that you need to be able to do. And one of those is be diligent in nurturing Mm -hmm. your gift. Don't allow your gift to be destroyed due to distractions and laziness, which essentially is procrastination. You have to stay on the ball with respect to manifesting this. Mm -hmm. God gave it to you, but you have to do the work of maintaining it. It's a spiritual principle. It's a spiritual principle. There's no way for you to be able to uh, move in that direction of what it is that you want without staying focused and not only focused, but intentional about it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, yeah, that's, that's what inspired the second book. And and two more will come each character, each of the four characters, the sun, the earth, the water, the wind, they will all have their stories of what, and and those stories are our stories. Yeah, absolutely. It's each of us. So as we come to a close, I just want you to leave us with um, two things. First, I want to find out how you take what you have learned throughout your life and share it with your boys. Because for me, that is, you know, we both have children that are young. And, um, you know, it's one thing for us to be winning out here and doing amazing things and doing things that push us to be better people so to speak, and women of color. Um, And then there's another thing to be able to share that and teach that to the next generation, which I believe um, that's where the healing is at. The healing really comes in this next generation. It is easier, Frederick Douglass says, it's easier to um, train young children than it is to To repair grown men, grown women, absolutely. And women. And so here we are at this place, this conjunction of life, that's yeah. my 2021 word conjunction community yeah. that that this crossroads of, you know, now here's our next generation. So you're a children's author, you're a fiction, you're writing mm-hmm. fiction books. So how do you take what you've learned and what you're doing and pass it on in very simple terms to your boys? Love it, love it, love it. So I think one, there's just leading by example. So like my, my, my husband had a, uh, a, my husband had started a company called Jojo's and my first son is named Jojo and it was a shoe company, Jojo Shoes. And then I was like, okay, so the little one has to have a company. So when I was starting my publishing company, I named it after my middle one, Miles Tales, like Miles is Tales. But then it also has the double meaning of tales that help you go miles mm-hmm. because the idea is that these stories should stay with you for the rest of your life. And you know, when you are feeling self-doubt, you say, don't be like Sune and destroy your here because of bullying, right? And when you're feeling you're procrastinating, don't be like Earth Day and procrastinate. And then, you know, the soil is not working. So that alone, when they were little at one point, my son was pretending to, my little son, who's Miles, was pretending to deliver shoes. And my big son is like, no, no, no. The shoe company is mine. The book company is yours. It's time for you to, <laughs> it's time for you to carry books, right? So I think there's one just this is now normal for them. People see being an author as being some like crazy lofty goal for them. It is just life just from them seeing me do it. It is life. And then I had them publish their own book. 
So they have a book called How to Deal with Kids. My 10-year-old, when he was six, wrote it. It's a guide for parents by children. When we, I homeschooled them a few years ago, we made that our project. The little one illustrated it, the big one wrote it, and I took them through the publishing process and we had a book signing for them. So there's just a certain like level of sharing just based on living. I think second, it comes in everyday interactions. You know, when they're like, I don't want to write this over again because they're being impatient. I'm like, do you think that I'm allowed not to write things over again as a publisher? Like literally I have to write things over again as a writer. And then in the publishing process, constantly check it. It's like every single moment of life provides an opportunity for just to share what I'm going through with them so that they know what I'm doing and, and I can model for them, not just from, you know, them observing, but me actually telling them and sharing. I love it. And that's how we um, raise the bar for them. Exactly. You know, that's exactly. how we raise the bar for them because then they're like, yeah, no, this is no longer the plateau. The plateau is up here. Yes. And then it just continues to, you know, it, it expands from there. Expand. And then they know what it is to be in their true divine self and their higher self. They know what it is to know how to reach and how to pull and expand and create space within themselves to do something different or to do something more or to do something and shift and pivot in a way that's supportive to them. And so what would you say would be the, the common theme? Like if you look back from the kid who's in the closet crying all the way until now, <laughs> what is the common theme? I mean, I think, I think, you know, part of my, the common theme is this idea of learning to love oneself and love others and bring, bring, and bring ourselves into the world. That is really what, what guides me. That little girl is still there within me. And so I recognize that I have to set an example. Like when I go into schools and girls are like, oh, like sometimes I dress up and they're like, oh, you're a princess. And I'm like, oh my goodness, this is so sweet that they're seeing this like African woman and they're like associating me with the premier princess. Or when they look at the book and they're like, oh my goodness, hold up, hold up. That author there, that's you. And I'm like, yes, you actually know the author. And so it's like this idea of like empowering ourselves so that we can empower others, loving ourselves so that we can love others, sharing our gifts so that we can make that normal for others. And then this is another note, like this painting behind me, my 10 year old did. Yeah. So he's already in a, in a, in a state where it's like, I can create something and it can be displayed. I don't have to hide myself. So many people have things. They're like, oh, I have 10 books in my, in my Microsoft word. I'm like, but you haven't had the courage to share it yet. How has that happened? Right? So I think that, you know, as far as raising children, we want them to be in a mode where they feel comfortable and it just becomes a way of life in which they create and share, create and share, create and share. The full expression the full expression of your true authentic self. Absolutely, as a human being. Like Oprah is always saying this, like our goal is to become the highest manifestation of ourselves of human beings, as human beings. And what does that mean? It means that we're like, literally, Aisa, you said something so golden that I wanna make sure that your audience gets. When you said a relationship is not necessarily about the other person. Yeah. It's about you living in your authenticity. I think you gave the audience a million dollars right there. Like that's a million dollars. Like. That's how we reach higher, by just being willing to be ourselves and to be completely, not just comfortable, but empowered in that, in all aspects of our lives, our relationships, our careers, our families, like just everything. Well, I think I may write a book. (laughs) You have inspired me. (laughs) (laughs) This is fantastic. Thank you so much, Alma. Thank you so much. It was so great. (laughs) 